1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Let's pray, though. Father, once again, we turn our hearts to your word. We ask that you, right now by your spirit, would minister to us, that you would speak to us. And Lord, I pray for those here tonight that might be in that place of just being weary. Lord, refresh tonight through your truth and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we saw David going through some difficult and very dark days. We saw and we looked in our last study that David was in a backslidden state. He'd been living in the land of the Philistines for 16 months, living in a place, a city called Ziglag, that the Achish, the king of the Philistines, had given over to David and over to his men. And it became kind of their their home base. And they were living there in that time and going out and doing these little raids against the enemies of the Philistines, but coming back and saying that they had been raiding the, the lands there of Israel. And so David's lying and he's living kind of this double life there in this place called Ziglag. And things hit an all-time low when the Philistines Philistines decide to wage war against the people of Israel, and David decides, kind of as an act of of just, you know, his pledge and and honoring to Achish, that he's going to line up with his men and go into battle against the people of Israel. He decides to fight with the Philistines against the people of God, the very people that he has been called to lead. But God, in his grace, doesn't let this happen. God intervenes, and what happens, we saw that the Philistine generals, they object, and they're like, hey, David and his guys, they can't come with us, because what happens if we get in the middle of the battle, and then he decides, you know, where his loyalties really lie, and he turns on us and begins to to ambush us, and so the, the Philistine generals beg Achish to not let David and his men go, and what happens is Achish ends up sending David and his men back home to Ziglag. Well, this was divine intervention intervention on the part of the Lord, sparing David from doing something that he would ultimately regret, fighting against the people he was called to lead. Now, you would have thought at this moment that David would have been happy, that he would have been relieved, that he would have been, you know, just blessed that he wasn't going into battle against the people of Israel, but instead he's discouraged. And he heads home to Ziglag, bummed out and depressed and feeling unwanted and unneeded. But this is where the Lord is really going to get his attention. And we noted that that what happened, while David and his men were off with the Philistines, the Amalekites came in and they raided Ziglag. And they burned the city and they took all of the families of David and his men, the women and the children. They took them captive and they led them off with them. And the city is burned to the ground and all their families are taken captive. And so what happens is David and his men, they leave Achish. They leave the armies of the Philistine and they start heading back to Ziglag. They travel three days, 25 miles a day from Gath to Ziglag. And it's when they get there to Ziglag that their hearts are filled with horror and despair because what do they see? And I want you to picture this in your mind. These 600 men, these 600 commandos, these 600 fighters coming there, you know, over the ridge and there's their city and they see the smoke and they see their homes burn and it's just desolate. And that's what they see. And they get into the town and they see that their families are missing. 
presumably dead. And what happens next is that these mighty warriors, we're told here in chapter 30, began to weep. And they began to wail. And it tells us here that they actually cried into the point where there was no strength in them to weep any longer. They're just exhausted by grief. But then their grief turns to anger. As somebody says, this is David's fault. If we hadn't been off with the Philistines, man, this never would have happened. This is all David's fault. Let's stone him. And it's at this point that David finally comes to the end of himself. And once again, he turns to the Lord and he seeks the Lord. And we read there at the end of verse 6 that it says David strengthened himself in the Lord. He comes to this place where finally he's at the end and it's like, Lord, I need you. And he turns back to the Lord again. And it's there just as Jeff was singing that God hears and he answers and he responds. And what he tells David is to go pursue after your families and you will recover all. And somehow David is able to rally the troops. Somehow he's able to bring them back together. And they began pursuing the Amalekites at an incredible pace, driven by desperation, driven by the love for their families and driven by the confidence in the promise of God. And this is all after they'd been marching for 25 miles a day for three straight days. Well, as they are charging these 600 commandos and they're going after their families and they're going to bring them back and love is filling their hearts and the promise of God is on their mind and they're going, some of them, 200 of them to be exact, begin to grow faint. And they tell David that they just can't make it, that they can't go on, that they can't keep the pace. And so David stops. And he has these 200 camp out at this brook called Bezor, and he has them guard the supplies. And David and the others go on to victory like the Lord promised, and they recover all of their families and their livestock and even spoil from the Amalekites. But something happens when they come back to the brook there at Bezor where these 200 men who were guarding the supplies are waiting. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 21. We read, Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. And so they went out to meet David and, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted, or some translations read, he saluted them. And then all the wicked and the worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. What we find here is tension in the army of Israel. We find tension here among David's men and some of the ones who were strong enough to go on say to David concerning those who had stayed behind, look, give them their wives and give them their kids and then tell them to get lost. And they start looking at these guys as being unworthy to really join in the celebration and the spoil. And I want us to consider tonight 
as we look at the end of this chapter, and then we'll move into chapter 31, I want us to consider this scene and David's response, and I want to make some application to, to our lives. These 600 men, we met them quite a while ago, in chronology, or in, in, as far as in, in time span, it would have been maybe close to 10 years now that they have been together. And when we first met them, we, we, we saw that they were guys who were in distress and in debt, and they were discontent. But they have grown now into being a, a great army. They've come to be known as David's mighty men. Yet at this particular point, in the midst of this battle, here's a third of these guys that just were... Fatigue. They were too weak to press in to the battle. Now, these were men, I want you to, to, to catch this, who loved David, who were loyal to David, who, who would follow David anywhere. But at this particular time, they just can't go on. Their hands are hanging down. Their knees are feeble. They're burned out. They've covered 75 miles in three days at a hectic pace and they were burned out and they were bummed out and they were grieving over the fact that their families were gone and they just couldn't go forward. They couldn't make it. You know, sometimes it's the struggle in our families that have a powerful impact upon our marching forth in the Christian life. Sometimes it's just the Things that go on, maybe with our kids, maybe in the marriage, maybe with an aunt or an uncle or a mom or a dad or just something that that's happening there in the family that it just begins to weigh on us. And we're we're unable to run at the pace that we were running at before. Just weary, just grieved, just just brought to that place. And even though, you know, we're told in the book of Galatians to not grow weary in well-doing, we can find ourselves at times just, just weary, just wiped out, just worn out. If you've been Christmas shopping lately, you might find yourself in, in, in that place. I, I, I have it easy. I, I have to buy one gift. I, I buy Denise's gift. She buys all the rest for, for our you know, family. And, and I've gone to the, the mall a couple times. And, and there's a couple times where I thought, you know, that, that maybe I'll get her this. And then I look at the line at the register. And I'm like, I don't have 45 minutes to stand in that line, you know. And, and, and so I'm out the door, you know, type of a thing. It's weary. And maybe just you find yourself tonight in this place of just being weary. Maybe it's the, the hustle and bustle of the season. Maybe it's the demand at work. Maybe it's, it's something going on in, in your family with, with one of your children where you just find yourself just, man, I'm just, man, I can't run like I was. I'm just weary. I want to encourage you tonight. I want to encourage you by what we see here in this passage. These guys were weary, probably because of the pace that they had been keeping. Probably because of the grief that they had endured and just and they were going through because of their families. And I would even venture to say that they might have been a bit weary and bummed out because of the change that they saw in David. I mean, this was their, their leader, but he had become a real enigma to them because here was a man who had killed Goliath. Here was a man who had wiped out the host of the Philistines. Here was a man who was this great worshiper of God. But, but here was a, a, a man who just a, a few weeks before who had, who had spared Saul's life. 
there in the cave and they were with them and he had the chance and, and he just cut off his robe and he felt bad even about that. But then here was this man who three days earlier was ready to march with the Philistines to fight against the armies of Israel and to fight against Saul. And these men were probably saying to themselves, you know, how is this going to end? And is David really going to lead us into battle against Saul? And what's going on? And perhaps it was the inconsistencies that they saw in David that caused them to be blown out and perplexed. And I think that in this, there's a good warning for us. A good warning for us. You see, any time that you fix your eyes on man, you'll be blown out. You'll be discouraged. You will be let down because all of us, we have inconsistencies. Any time that you put your eyes on me, any time that you put your eyes on Howard, any time that you put your eyes on Steve or, or anybody else that is in some type of a spiritual position that maybe, you know, you look at, listen, you are going to be disappointed because we will fail you. Ask our wives. We'll fail you. We'll disappoint. We'll let you down. You can count on it. But that's why we're told in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 to run the race. Laying aside the weight and the sin, the things that that hold us back, but run doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes on him, the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus, who the Bible says is the same yesterday, today and forever. Listen, we can change like the weather, but Jesus, he never changes. He never disappoints. He never leaves you disillusioned. He's true to the end. So these guys are bummed out. They're burned out. They're blown out. But they don't back out. They don't run off. They don't go to a place where they just are like, you know, just forget it. It's over. They're still loyal to David and David has compassion on them. And he says, stay here, camp out at this brook here. We're going to leave all of our stuff here and you guys can watch it. You can guard the stuff and be refreshed. Again, I believe in this room, there are those here tonight who are faint hearted. But Jesus wants you to be refreshed tonight. I want us to consider also here tonight the rejoicing of these guys who were faint-hearted. You see, when David comes back from the battle, these guys, they were glad, they were excited that he returned. And they go out to greet him. And I want you to imagine this scene. Here comes the army and here comes with them. It's the women and the children. And they've got animals and they've got spoil. You know, they've got treasures that, that they're bringing back. And here, you know, with this, this 600 or actually these 400 guys, is this huge procession now. And they're coming back. And, and there's these guys driving, you know, vast herds of cattle and flock and sheep. And they're singing as they march. This is David's spoil. And then you see the armed men and their arms are full of stuff. And you hear them singing another song. David recovered all. David recovered all. And all these guys that are there at the the brook at Bezor, they start to join into the singing. This is David's spoil. David has recovered all. But their rejoicing is momentarily interrupted by the words of these other soldiers. 
as they look at these guys who had been left behind and they say, man, you guys were too weak to fight. You were too weak to go on. And so you get zip. It's interesting to me, notice it again, that the Holy Spirit refers to them in verse 22 as worthless men and wicked men. Bible being inspired by the Spirit of God. And, and here, he, he makes mention here the reference to these guys, these mighty commandos who had went off into the fight. He refers to them as worthless, wicked men. The King James calls them sons of Belial or sons of the devil. The King James Version. Why is that? Well, strife and division and condemnation are all tools of the devil. And these guys right now at this moment were being used in that way. You see, it's the devil who always wants the people of God to feel useless. It's the devil that always wants the people of God to to feel condemned. It's the devil who always wants the people of God to to, to feel defeated. And these quote-unquote worthless men had these condemning words. But watch what David, the man after God's own heart, does. We pick it up in verse 23. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hands the troop that came against us, For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall be who stays by the supplies, and they shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel to this day. The wicked and worthless men, they looked at the spoil and said, we fought for this spoil and it's ours. David looked at the spoil and said, look what the Lord has given us. Note the difference. One is to say, hey, I did this. It's mine. And I'm going to hold on to it. It's mine. It belongs to me. The other is to say, the Lord did this. I need to share. The Lord blessed. I need to give out. David saw this situation, had compassion on these guys, and he wanted them to take part in it. And David was a leader for those who were faint-hearted. He was their advocate. And what he does here is he pleads for two things. He pleads concerning all the people, their unity, and also their usefulness. And I want us to consider this. First, he pleads their unity. David uses the word us three times in one verse when he speaks of the battle and the spoils. David says, God has given the spoil not to you alone, but he's given it to us all. He's given to us all. He's preserved us all. He's delivered to us all. Those who came against us. David is talking about a very important truth about these people is that there was a oneness. They were one. They were joined together. It was one army. They were one people. Paul spoke of a similar thing concerning the body of Christ. That there's a oneness in the body of Christ. Many members, but one body. That there's this unity in the body of Christ. Many parts and many members with different functions. But there's one body that we're, that we're a part of. It's the body of Christ. And Jesus is the head. And so David, first of all, is making note of that. The fact that, hey, there's a oneness here. There's a unity here, but also their usefulness. 
He says in verse 24, For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stands by the supplies. They shall share alike. And he makes this statue. That from then on, that that would be the case, that those who fight and those who guard, that they would share the same. Because both were useful. And both have their place. It's been said that no army fights well when its camp is unguarded. There's a need to have the camp guarded. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, It is a great thing for a church to know that its bases are well guarded by a praying band. You know, there are those in our body who teach. Myself and some of the other pastors who will share behind this pulpit on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or a Sunday morning. There are those who are in the the children's ministry classes every week and they're teaching the young kids. There's the guys teaching in the junior high and the the, the high school and, and, and the college ministries. And then there's those teaching in the home fellowships and those teaching at the, the jails and those teaching at the convalescent homes. And, and there are those who are, in, in a sense, you might say, you know, they're out there and they're, they're kind of on the front lines, you know, and they're, they're, they're battling theirs. They're sharing the word. But you know what? There's also those who are watching and guarding and battling in a different sense on their knees, in prayer. And both are equally important. Both are vital. That guarding. I'm so thankful for those in our fellowship who are committed to pray. Again, it was Spurgeon who said, To me it is a boundless solace that I live in the prayers of thousands. I like that. I live in the prayers of thousands. Boy, I'd like to be able to say that. People just knowing, and I'm so thankful for those of you who, who you know, remind me that, and, and even those who don't, that I, that I know that you're, you're praying. I need your prayers. Paul commissioned there in Timothy. He said, pray for us. Pray for us. Spurgeon founded his solace that, that he was found his solace that he lived in the, the, the prayers of thousands. And he says, I will not say which does the better service, the man that preaches or the man that prays. But I know this, that we cannot do better without the voice that preaches than without the heart that prays. The petitions of our bedridden sisters and brothers are the wealth of the church. In their particular church, there were people, they couldn't even make it out of their beds to come to church. They were, they were that ill, like our brother Jim Donnelly. But they prayed. And Spurgeon, man, he saw that as being the, the strength and the vitality of the church. David sees with these guys, hey, they're just like, there's no difference. They guarded, you fought, it's all the same. And then we see the rewarding of the faint-hearted that David says, look, they get an equal share. This is what I want to encourage you in tonight. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, our better than David. He says the same thing. 
David comes back. These guys go out to greet him. And what does he do? He salutes them. And you know what? What does the Bible tell us? That Jesus, our Lord, is coming back. And when he does, he's going to salute you. What is he going to say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. And you might look at yourself today and you might think, you know, because here's what happens sometimes, too, is a lot of times we find ourselves in a place where we begin to compare ourselves with somebody else. And we say, you know, they're doing this and they're doing this. And right now, you know, maybe you're a mom here and you've got some little ones. And you, you look at one of your, your, your girlfriends whose kids are a little bit older and they're, you know, on their own. And she's got a lot more time and she's doing a lot more stuff. And she's involved in a lot more things. And you look at her and you think, man, you know, I'm just kind of useless. And I'm not doing very much. And here I am. I'm just, you know, with these kids. And listen, if you're doing what God has called you to do, and that's what he's called you to do, then his word to you will be, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. That's his heart. As he looks at us, well done. The word Bezor, the brook where they camp, it means good news. And the good news is this, is that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back and he's going to reward the faithful. So be encouraged. If you're faint hearted, listen, Jesus is not going to leave you nor forsake you. And when he comes back, he comes back with that salute. that His heart goes out to you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you don't lose heart. You see, what you are doing, and even when you find yourself in that place where things have changed and you're just like, you know, man, I've, I've lost the pace. See, these guys, they couldn't go on, but they stayed loyal. They didn't just wander off into the wilderness. They, they stayed loyal to David. They hung there by the brook. They waited for him to return. And when he gets back, he says, man, you guys did a good job. And maybe that's where you find yourself right now in that place where you're just like, Lord, I'm just waiting for you to come back. That's all the strength I have right now. He'll reward you. The Bible says that, that he will reward those who just... There's a crown, in fact. A crown for those who just simply love his appearing. I tell you, that's, this is a good study to do. Do a study on the different crowns in the Bible that the Lord is going to give us. And you know what you'll find? That it's pretty easy to get a crown. He says, I'm going to give you a crown for those who just love my appearing. You know, how many here, you're just in love with the fact that, that Jesus is coming back. How many of you are in that, that place? There's a crown waiting for you. It's great. Just love is appearing. There's a reward. And these guys were just in that place. They were just in love with the fact David's coming back. And man, we can't wait for him. You know, we're waiting for him to come back. We can't wait for him to get here. And, and they were just excited with that. And David comes back and he blesses them. See, we're united together. And it's the Lord's heart to bless us. Turn over to chapter 2 real quick. Or 2 Samuel, I mean. I'm sorry. Chapter 2. I want us to note here couple of things about these guys. In chapter 2, or excuse me, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, Saul is now dead and David is now going to be anointed as 
the king over Judah, and then later over all of Israel. But notice what it says in verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David, underline this, brought up the men who were with him, underline this, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. David comes up, and what does he do? He, he brought up those who were with him, every man, not just the 400, every man and his household. Every man was brought up. Others may condemn you, not Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a speech. No, that's not what he said. I'll give you a kick in the pants. No, that's not what he said. He says, I'll give you rest. I'll refresh you. The issue is not whether or not we are on the front lines or faint-hearted and staying with the stuff. The issue is this. It's who Jesus is. And that Jesus is faithful. And he knows your heart. And he knows where you're at. And others might look at you and think you're not doing enough. Or others might look at you and think, you know, that, that, that you're useless. But that's not what Jesus sees. And if your heart is loyal to him and you find yourself in that place where, where you're, you know, doing and you're about all that you can. And it's like, Lord, it, it, it might not be that much, but Lord, it's, it's all that I have right now at this particular time in, in my life. Listen, he's going to bring you up. and He's going to refresh you. And he's going to bless you and he's going to reward you. Every one of us today that knows Jesus and is loyal to Jesus will be brought up with Jesus to that place that he has prepared for us. Take heart in that. Rejoice in that. He sees you who are faint hearted, but his heart is loyal to you. Just as David's was to these guys. Well, let's quickly now move into chapter 31 and we'll wrap up 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and that other guy, Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul. And the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men and come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Astros and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. 
And now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They cremated them. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. The events of this chapter happened 20 years after Saul first heard the announcement of judgment against him from the prophet Samuel. Saul's career, we've seen, it started with a bright prospect, and yet it ended in such despair. And it was all because Saul hardened his heart toward the Lord instead of humbling his heart to the Lord. He hardened his heart against the Lord, against the word of the Lord, and he didn't follow in the way of the Lord. And he hardened his heart instead of humbling his heart. For 20 years, because of that, Saul's heart grew more and more hard and more and more rebellious by the day. Listen, there's a lot of people who put off getting right with God. And they say, you know what, I'll, 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 I'll do that at a later time. I know I'm not right with God. I know I'm not where I should be with God right now. But, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it later on. I, I know I still got time. That's a grave mistake because here's what happens when you do that. When you resist that voice of the Holy Spirit that's going off, you know, in a sense like, like, like it's an alarm. If you pictured this, you know, it's your smoke detector going off in your house and it's just, you know, blaring and it's just going. I remember one night waking up in the middle of the night to that horrible sound of, you know, the smoke alarm going off and running downstairs and thinking, you know, the house is on fire and what's going on and what's happening and, and, and it's blaring. I can't find fire anywhere. What happened was is... is uh, uh, someone in our house—I won't mention names—but I'm married to her. She she left a can <laughs> she left a candle burning in the bathroom, and it burned out, and it and the smoke, you know, was going up, and 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 so middle of the night, the smoke alarm goes off. But picture this—you've heard that eerie sound, you know, you're cooking, and the smoke in the oven. All of a sudden, you know, it's going off. And but just think—if you just left that thing going on. You know, had a perpetual fire going to it. So it just was constantly blaring, you know, on and on and on and on and on. What would happen? Well, the battery would start to to wear out in those things, the ones that are battery operated. And that 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 horrible noise would get fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter. And that's what happens. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is like an alarm. And when, we, when he first starts to convict us about something, it's like it's loud. It's like that alarm. But when we ignore it, it starts to get fainter and fainter because our heart is getting harder and harder. And we're growing a resistance against it. And that's what was happening to Saul. And that's what happens to that person that, that doesn't listen to that conviction of the Holy Spirit. Their heart begins to get hard. And Saul's life ends in this tragic death. That gives the enemies of God the chance to blaspheme against the Lord. All because he hardened his heart. They take his body and they absolutely just disfigure it. Cut his head off. Plaster him up. Hang him up on this wall. And they do this all in in just an act of worship to their idols. And so Saul's death. 
dishonors the Lord. It's used to glorify pagan gods and make a mockery of God. And that's what sin does. It's such a tragic thing. The only redeeming thing we see in this chapter is found in these guys, these men from Jabesh Gilead, that they come and they take down the bodies. And here, 1 Samuel, it ends on this tragic, tragic note, this despairing note of one last reminder of what sin does if we don't deal with it, if we don't come clean, if we don't turn to the Lord instead of turning from the Lord. When we come into the new year, We'll pick up in 2 Samuel and begin to work our way through uh, 2 Samuel and on into the kings. For the next couple weeks, uh, a couple of the guys are going to be sharing. Howard is going to share next week. That'll be a blessing. And then Pastor Charlie on the 29th. And, uh, and so let's look forward to that. But we're going to take a little break in our Old Testament study. But uh, in January, we'll come back to this, but uh, let's go ahead and stand and let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that, Lord, even in the midst of those times and seasons when we find ourselves just weary and faint-hearted, that we can rejoice because, Lord, you are faithful. We can rejoice because you reward even the faint-hearted. Lord, I think that some of us right now, you have us in a place camped by the brook. Some of us here, Lord, tonight, you perhaps have purposely slowed down because you want to build up. You want to refresh our hearts. Lord, may we find ourselves like these men anxiously waiting for David to return. Lord, may we find ourselves anxiously waiting for you to return and desperately drawing near to you in this time. And Lord, I pray for those here tonight who are weary in well-doing. I pray for those here tonight who are maybe faint-hearted because of their family and the trials that they are in. Lord, I pray for those here tonight who are just a bit worn out by the hustle and bustle of the demands that are upon them during this time. Lord, I pray tonight that you would refresh them. And Lord, that they would know that in the midst of their weariness, that you don't condemn them. That you're not mad at them, but your heart goes out to them, just as David's went out to these guys. And you look forward to seeing them run again. But Lord, we know that you are patient. And we thank you for that. Refresh, Lord, my brothers and sisters tonight. In your glorious name, amen.